Welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live. What I wanted to do this morning is to explain the judgment that was handed down by the Constitutional Court yesterday in which Janusz Walus, who had murdered, assassinated to be more precise, the former leader, boss of the South African Communist Party, Chris Harney, on the eve of our democracy, has been granted parole by the Constitutional Court. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. As one would have expected, the outcome of the court has caused massive political backlash. Chris Hardy was an enormously popular leader. There was a longer list that this killer had in mind, including Nelson Mandela, as black leaders that needed to be assassinated to try and thwart the democratic process. And so we quite literally averted what would have been major civil war and bloodshed if it wasn't for the political maturity with which many of Comrade Chris Harney's colleagues then responded to the assassination. And this killer was sentenced to not life imprisonment, that was the commuted sentence, but initially the death penalty, in fact, for what he had done. And over the years had tried his luck to get parole to be granted, and various ministers had decided not to do so, even on occasions where a parole board had recommended, in fact, that he be eligible for parole. Now, the difficulty in terms of good explainer journalism is that what we try to do is to explain to you complexities in politics, economics, in ethics, in philosophy, political science, in law, but to do it in such a way that you can understand the essence of a particular concept or an event that had taken place um, and at the same time, not watering it down so much that we actually end up losing important detail in that particular concept or event that we explain. And there's an art and a science to good explainer journalism. Some people do it well across the world, others don't, and even good journalists are sometimes specialist journalists that don't necessarily produce content that the average Joe is able to access because it can be really difficult to explain complicated things. It is a unique skill in the same way in which someone can be a brilliant academic but not necessarily be an excellent popular teacher because it can be very difficult to explain complex ideas in the academy. 
Um, the flip side is also true. Someone can be good at explainer journalism, even if they're not an excellent economist or lawyer in their own right, or they can be a good teacher of a complicated novel, even if they could never have produced the novel themselves. So, with that said, let me see whether I can help you out as listeners of this podcast. I have read the judgment. I've also spoken to friends of mine who are lawyers and to try and understand and also to rehearse my own understanding of what the legal reasoning of the court was. And I want to be very simple, but hopefully not do the court injustice in the process. I want to say a couple of things to you. The first point to make is a non-legal point. Please, please, pretty please, fellow South Africans, when you respond to a court judgment, I know it's difficult, and I will come back to this difficulty because I think it's an interesting difficulty. It's difficult to resist responding to a court order when you see in the news or hear on the radio or read in the newspaper, the court has ordered the release of person A, B, C, D. However, you cannot rationally have a final response to a court order unless you understand the reasoning behind that court order. And so when we put a particular judge, judgment, a particular entire judicial system on trial, we must do so in relation to the reasoning behind the judgments. Otherwise, we are doing the equivalent of reviewing a book that we've never read or giving a one-hour speech about what we think about a film that we've never actually seen. I don't think you would have high regard for a film reviewer that does a review of a film even though they haven't seen it. And I certainly hope that you don't think a book journalist who gives you a view about a book they haven't read that is comprehensive and final and a strong opinionated position about how they feel in relation to that book, I really hope you don't respect them. The same goes for yourself. You have an intellectual duty to hold your horses and to read a judgment, alternatively to listen to those whose job description it is to try and summate for you in a really lucid way what a judgment is about before you form an opinion and take it with you to dinner or the water cooler at work. So that's the first process point that I want to make before the judgment was even available because I'd asked some of the actors involved in this matter to give me a copy of the judgment and before the judgment was digitally available and before it was archived online where everyone can now go and see it already tens of thousands of people were spewing opinions left right and center and I think that's unfortunate it's understandable but it doesn't mean that it is justified obviously secondly how did the court actually arrive at this decision? Well, interestingly, I think that the court's reasoning is pretty simple in the end. It is also why, as Concord judgments go, this is a fairly short judgment. And I must say, grammatically and legally, very accessible. It's about 47 pages. And that is quite short. You can read it two or three times. There's also not insane amounts of Latin, and a lot of it has some repetition as well in it for important reasons in the reasoning, but it, it, it also means that you can read it, and by the time you get to the end, some of the earlier stuff in the judgment gets repeated and analyzed two or three times, and it will further 
be lodged in your memory what the reasoning of the court was. And basically the court had said the following, that when all is said and done, and now I'm coming, coming to the essence of the court's reasoning, when all is said and done, Minister Ronald Lamola has decided not to grant parole to this guy on the basis that the crime he committed was that of a political assassination. It is a serious crime and the trial court that found him guilty and sentenced him to death remarked on how serious these political actions on his part were. Cold-blooded assassination that took us to the brink of civil war and goodness knows how that would have ended but for political leadership on the part of the likes of famously Tokyo Sehwale in the driveway in Boxburg crying. Who can forget that scene? I was a lighty at the time and I remember watching the news and seeing that particular scene and the vulnerability of the political leadership enabled it to hold in a psychopolitical way the anger of so many of the followers of the South African Communist Party in particular. And those remarks made by the trial court combined with the nature of the crime, the seriousness of the crime, is why Minister Ronald Lamola decided on balance, therefore, he can't give parole, even though this guy has been jailed now for some 28 years. And the court says, but here's a problem with the reasoning. And, and, and this is interesting, right? Because, as I said to a government official, the point that the Chief Justice makes next is almost interesting, not because of legal reasons, but formal, logical reasons. The philosophy student in me, we're getting more excited than the undergraduate law student in me because it is the logical analysis more than anything else that ends the legal analysis quickly. And the court says the following. The court says, the problem, minister, is that it will always be factually true that the crime was a political assassination, that it was serious, and that the trial court made the remarks to which you've made reference in the papers, which means that there are no circumstances under which parole can be granted by your reasoning, which therefore means that your decision cannot, with reference to the policies around parole in the department, be regarded as fair, let alone your decision amounting to a just and equitable treatment of an incarcerated, convicted criminal because you have set up criterion that into perpetuity can never be met by someone who is sentenced to life. It can never be met. If we revisit the facts in 2079, it will still be true that the political assassination was a serious 
offence, it will still be true that the trial court said what it did. And so if your reasoning is the nature of the crime, the seriousness of it, which are linked, and the comments of the court at the time, looking back over our shoulders, we can't change those facts. They are immutable. So if you're going to use facts that cannot be changed as the basis of your judgment, then what you're really saying to this man, what you're saying to us as a court, and what you're saying as a matter of parole policy in effect, is that there are no circumstances under which this gentleman could even bother to apply because you have made it impossible as a matter of logic for him to ever be able to cross the hurdle. That can't be rational. How can that be rational? Because it means that you have set up no eligibility criteria for someone to be, to, to be able to, to, to come up for parole. And that's it. You don't need to listen to the rest of my explainer. I've got other things to say. But you could actually end right here because there's really nothing more to the law than that. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. I mean, you know, it took me back to my competitive debating days. And I thought this is like a slam dunk rebuttal of the limitations of a policy proposal. If someone's policy proposal was never grant parole to someone if they commit a serious offense in a court makes really colorful remarks about how their offense undermine society's stability, then what you are really proposing is that someone should literally rot in jail until they're dead. Now, maybe you do, but then be honest about it and be plain speaking about it and tell us that you have a policy and your policy is a political assassin should rot in jail. And if that's not your policy, then you must have criteria for parole that can, in principle, be met, depending on the facts at hand. So the minister can't have it both ways. He can't, on the one hand, say, my policy isn't that a prisoner must rot in jail. And at the same time, his criteria that he applied are ones that could never factually be overcome on the part of the incarcerated person. And that's why the, the case fell flat. Now you can see, I'm moving to the third point. Remember, the first was to, to really ask you to not react to an outcome, but to ask what the reasons were before you react. The second was my massive explanation of the logic of the court. And it was essentially telling the minister that the minister's criteria could never be met and therefore it's irrational. And now I want to move to a, to a third point that I, that I want to make. And it, it, it's a comment before we get back to the judgment. The third point I want to make is, now you can see that the court's reasoning is not crazy. I mean, you can't respond and say, oh, these people hate Zuma, but they love an assassin. This is what happens when you have unelected officials that have way too much power, we should never have opted into democracy. Or if we did, why the hell did we choose the Concord to have so much power? No. I mean, there's, there's, there's absolutely no arbitrariness and irrationality in the logic of the court. A good lawyer, whatever their political ideology, may criticize the court, and I won't in this 
recording tell you which of the criticisms have come up in my conversations privately so far. There are some interesting ones. But the point is, the reasoning of the court is not silly. It is serious and it's actually based on what the minister had submitted. The court did not pull its decision and its logic out of its proverbial arse. It looked at the papers before it and it then evaluated the reasoning of the minister himself. And I think it's important to acknowledge that because we should not undermine either the rule of law in general, which means respecting the outcome of cases, but specifically the authority of the constitutional court more precisely, based on a whim. You can disagree with an outcome and still respect the authority of the court, not as a matter of course, but because when you examine a judgment like I've done this one, you understand that there is at an absolute minimum coherence in the reasoning and I'll go a step further and say that it's actually cogent, in other words, convincing, and not just internally coherent. So that's just a comment. That's the third point. The fourth point I want to make is to come back to what the court said. Now, here it gets interesting. You know what? <laughs> Minister Ronald Lamola actually provided further factual material besides the logical thing that I spoke about is my second point when the court said you've set up criteria that can never be met Mr. Minister. The, the fourth point I want to make is that the minister himself and, and I confess I didn't know this because I hadn't initially looked at the heads of argument. The minister actually provided further factual basis for why um, the assassin should be released because the minister in his own consideration of the issues listed all the positive factors that should be taken into account. And I quote from the minister, not the court, the minister. The minister said the following. I took into account positive factors such as, number one, the behavior and adjustment of the offender during his incarceration and the clean record he has within the correctional center. Number two, the multidisciplinary programs attended by the offender within the correctional center aimed at his rehabilitation. Number three, the availability of support systems to the offender and employment prospects in the event of him being placed on parole. Number four, the fact that the offender is a first offender. Number five, the reports of the psychologists and social workers. Number six, the remorse on the part of the offender for the crime of murder committed. And number seven, the opinions of the psychologist that the risk of the offender reoffending is low. I mean, there you have a shopping list of seven factors that the minister says are positive. What the minister doesn't do, and the court criticizes him for this lacuna in his reasoning, and another reason why it then says the minister's final decision is internally incoherent and irrational ultimately, is that the minister doesn't tell us what he does with these seven factors. He simply says that notwithstanding these factors, I'm not going to give the guy parole. But that's not good enough from an administrative justice point of view. You've got to tell us how you weighed each of these factors. If you say he's a good prisoner, he's had good behavior, he's not going to reoffend, that he showed remorse, the social workers and psychologists have given you reports, and you regard those as positive, how are you weighing that qualitatively in deciding that you're still not going to give him parole? That's not the Concord speaking, South Africans. That's not the Concord speaking. The Concord is simply reminding the minister of his own list of so-called positive factors. And that's the minister's wording. 
in regards this political assassin. And so when Mrs. Dimpohani says that she is angry at the outcome of this court, I hope that both her and supporters of Chris Hani will take cognizance of the fact that the court was actually playing with the reasoning and the factual determinations of Minister Ronald Lamola. The court was not substituting his factual evaluation for their own. I wonder whether you, as a listener of my podcast, was aware of the fact that even though Mrs. Hani doesn't accept the apology, even though you and I may not regard the guy as completely honest in telling us who he was in cahoots with, and even though you and I may think that he is not contrite and probably could not be contrite, maybe we don't accept that the apology could ever be morally of any value. Minister Ronald Lamola regards him as having done enough ethically and legally to in fact have shown remorse. That is what the minister thinks. And again, the court says, but if you think all of these things, how did you come to your overall conclusion? You never actually tell us what your weighing up process were. And, you know, there's more one can say. But I think you get a, enough of a sense in this explainer audio piece of how the court then says, I'm sorry, but combining all of these positive factors that you've mentioned with the fact that your, your, your overriding reasons are factors that no prisoner could overcome, no one can undo what a trial court had said, no one can overcome the nature of the crime they've committed. Those are immutable facts. And then the court says, and lastly, if we then analyze sources of law that applied before there was a new regime around parole, the truth of the matter is that, um, you know, being commuted to, to life imprisonment, if we gerrymander laws at the time with a new constitutional order to try and make sense of what does that mean for someone who got lucky they were on death row and then there was a new constitutional order and the death penalty got struck down certainly on the facts after 28 years it's very clear and the 47 pages go into this detail which i won't go into here that on the facts alone after 28 years or so you have overcome every single possible factual interpretation for what the minimum number of years are you should be in jail before parole eligibility must apply to you pending how you meet the parole board's criteria. And by the reasoning and factual determinations of the minister himself, it is very clear that not only was this guy eligible to be considered since 2005, but the minister has given us a shopping list of reasons in favor of why he should be granted parole. So ultimately, here's my final view. The decision of the court is rational. The decision of the court makes sense in law. The decision of the court is hurtful politically, but it cannot let those wider psychopolitical considerations override its constitutional jurisprudential duty. And so the decision that was taken cannot be criticized in law, and it's now up to good leadership amongst our political um, parties to explain to supporters why we can and must do two things simultaneously. 
on the one hand, accept the authority of the court, understand the reasoning of the court as legally sound, and still deal with the psychopolitical pain so many years later. Mm -hmm.